Hello, and welcome to A Breath of Fresh Air, Episode 2, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And also, that is air, E-Y-R-E, so if you're looking for fresh air, A-I-R, I would check NPR. I'm your host, Catherine Fulp, here at the High Point Library, and if you're listening to this, that means you're more than likely made it through the first episode. Thank you, and thank you for listening. For those who don't know, this is a podcast where I read the first chapters of classic novels so that you can skip to the good parts. Here's how this works. First, I'll introduce our book and give a little bit of background. Then, I read you the first chapter. After that, I'll give a spoiler-free synopsis and mention some of the themes, as well as tell you about some other books and movies that you might like. From there, you get to decide whether or not you want to read it. If you like high society, if you like secret romance, if you like a 50-something-year-old society lady fretting on the day of her huge party, then we have the right book for you. This month, I'll be reading you the first part of the 1925 novel, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, who was a master at writing women in the throes of internal conflict. Virginia Woolf wrote during the modernist era. This is a period stretching from the early 1900s through the 40s. Other popular authors from this time were James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Samuel Beckett, William Faulkner, and Juna Barnes. Literature from this movement was in the habit of consciously attempting to overturn the norm by experimenting with new styles. One of the most notable styles is what we see in Mrs. Dalloway, which is stream-of-consciousness writing. Stream-of-consciousness is basically what it sounds like. It's when an author decides to write as though we're in the character's head hearing their thoughts. It doesn't necessarily have to follow any grammatical rules, and sometimes it can be a little bit muddled to read. In Mrs. Dalloway, Wolf doesn't just put us in Mrs. Dalloway's head, but in the heads of whoever she is talking to as well. In some sections, this can be really enlightening, and in other sections, it can be really funny. Mrs. Dalloway is not divided into chapters per se, but instead takes place over the course of a day. So you might be asking yourself, how are you going to read me the first chapter? Well, traditionally, Mrs. Dalloway's first part takes place from when she leaves the house until when she returns around 11 a.m. However, since that would take me way over an hour to read, I've shortened this part to take us from when Mrs. Dalloway leaves the house to until a car backfires outside of the flower shop she's in. Before we start, I'd like to give you a special listener's note. Like Dracula, the book that we read first, this book is old. It was published in 1925, and it might contain some antiquated views. These views are not shared by myself or the High Point Public Library. Also, I would like to thank Project Gutenberg for providing the North Carolina Digital Library with a copy of Mrs. Dalloway. This book is available on Libby via the North Carolina Digital Library. So, without further ado, Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. Doors would be taken off their hinges, Rumpelmeyer's men were coming, and then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge, for so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Burton in the open air. How fresh, how calm, 
stiller than this, of course, the air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of eighteen, as she then was, solemn, feeling as she did standing there at the open window that something awful was about to happen. Looking at the flowers, at the trees, with the smoke winding off them and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking until Peter Walsh said, Musing among the vegetables. Was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers. Was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone out to the terrace, Peter Walsh. He would be back from India one of these days, June or July, she forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings one remembered, his eyes, his pocket knife, his smile, his grumpiness, and, when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was, a few sayings like this about cabbages. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dirtnell's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster. A touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green, light, vivacious, though she was over fifty, and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross, very upright. For having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over twenty. One feels in the midst of the traffic, or waking at night, Clarice was positive, a particular hush, or solemnity, an indescribable pause, a suspense, but that might be her heart, affected, as they say, by influenza, before Big Ben strikes. There! Out it boomed. First a warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Such fools we are, she thought, crossing Victoria Street. For heaven only knows why one loves it so, how one sees it so, making it up, building it round one, tumbling it, creating it, every moment afresh, but the veriest frumps, the most dejected of miseries sit, sitting on the store, the most dejected of miseries sitting on the doorsteps, drinking their downfall to the same, can't be dealt with, she felt positive, by acts of parliament for that very reason. They love life. In people's eyes, in the swing, tramp, and trudge, in the bellow and the uproar, the carriages, motor cars, omnibuses, vans, sandwich men shuffling and swinging, brass bands, barrel organs, in the triumph and the jingle and strange high singing of some airplane overhead was what she loved. Life. London. This moment of June. For it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Mrs. Foxcroft at the embassy last night, eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed and now the old manor house must go to a cousin, or Lady Bexborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, with a telegram in her hand, John, her favorite, killed. But it was over, thank heaven, over. It was June. The king and queen were at the palace, and everywhere, though it was still so early, there was a beating, a stirring of galloping ponies, a tapping of cricket bats, Lords, Ascot, Ranelagh, and all of the rest of it, wrapped in the soft mesh of the grey-blue morning air, which, as the day wore on, would unwind them and set them on their lawns and pitches the bouncing ponies, whose forefeet struck the ground and up they sprung, whose forefeet just struck the ground and up they sprung, the whirling young men and laughing girls in their transparent muslins who, even now, after dancing all night, were taking their absurd woolly dogs for a run. And even now, at this hour, and even now, at this hour, 
discreet old dowagers were shooting out in their motor cars on errands of mystery, and the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their pass and diamonds. And the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their paste and diamonds, their lovely old sea green brooches in 18th century settings to tempt Americans. But one must economize, not buy things rashly for Elizabeth. And she too, loving it as she did with an absurd and faithful passion, being part of it, since her people were couriers once in the time of the Georges, she too was going that very night to kindle and illuminate, to give her a party. But how strange, on entering the park, the silence, the mist, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks, the pouched birds waddling, and who should be coming along with his back against the government buildings most appropriately, carrying a dispatch box marked stamped with the royal arms who but hugh whitbread her old friend hugh the admirable hugh good morning to you clarissa said hugh rather extravagantly for they had known each other as children where are you off to i love walking in london said mrs dalloway really it's better than walking in the country i love walking in london said mrs dalloway really it's better than walking in the country they had just come up, unfortunately, to see two doctors. They had just come up, unfortunately, they had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people came to see pictures, go to the opera, take their daughters out. The Whitbreads came to see doctors. Time without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread in the nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again? Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, intimating by a kind of powder, a swell of his well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed always, but presumably had to be with his little job at court. That his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which, as an old friend, Clarissa Dalloway would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance, and felt very sisterly and oddly conscious at the same time of her hat. Not the right hat for the early morning, was that it? For Hugh always made her feel, as he bustled on, raising his hat rather extravagantly and assuring her that she might be a girl of eighteen, and of course he was coming to her party tonight. Evelyn absolutely insisted. Only a little late he might be after the party at the palace, to which he had to take one of Jim's boys. She always felt a little skimpy beside Hugh, schoolgirlish, but attached to him, partly from having known him always. But she did think him a good sort in his own way, though Richard was nearly driven mad by him, and as for Peter Walsh, he had never to this day forgiven her for liking him. <sighs> she could remember scene after scene at Burton, Peter furious, Hugh not, of course, in his match in any way, but still not a positive imbecile as Peter made out, not a mere barber's block. When his old mother wanted to give up shooting or take her to the bath, he did it, without a word. When his old mother wanted him to give up shooting or to take her to bath, he did it, without a word. He was really unselfish, and as for saying, as Peter did, that he had no heart, no brain, nothing but the manners and breeding of an English gentleman, that was her dear Peter at his worst. That was only her dear Peter at his worst. And he could be intolerable. He could be impossible but adorable to walk with on a morning like this.
June had drawn out every leaf on the trees. The mothers of Pamlico gave suck to their young. Messages were passing from the fleet to the Admiralty. Arlington Street in Piccadilly seemed to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves hotly, brilliantly, on waves of that divine vitality which Clarissa loved. To dance, to ride. She had adored all that. For they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks. But suddenly it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? Some day, some sights, bringing him back to her calmly without the old bitterness, which perhaps was the reward of having cared for people, they came back in the middle of St. James's Park on a fine morning. Indeed, they did. But Peter, however beautiful the day might be, and the trees and the grass and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles, if she told him to. He would look. It was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner, Pope's poetry, people's characters eternally, and the defects of her own soul. How he scolded her. How they argued. She would marry a prime minister and stand the top of a staircase, the perfect hostess, he called her. She had cried over it in her bedroom. She had the makings of a perfect hostess, he said. So she would still find herself arguing in St. James's Park, still making out that she had been right, and she had too, not to marry him. For a marriage, a little license, a little independence, there must be between people living together day in, day out in the same house, which Richard gave her, and she him. Where was he this morning, for instance? Some committee. She never asked what. But with Peter, everything had to be shared, everything gone into. And it was intolerable. And when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain, she had to break with him or they would have been destroyed. Both of them ruined, she was convinced. Though she had borne about with her for years like an arrow sticking in the heart, like an arrow sticking in her heart, the grief the anguish, and then the horror of the moment when someone told her at a concert that he had married woman met on the boat going to India. Never would she forget all that. Cold, heartless, a prude, he called her. Never could she understand how he cared, for those Indian women did, presumably, silly, pretty, flimsy nincompoops. But those Indian women did, presumably, silly, pretty, flimsy nincompoops. And she wasted her pity, for he was quite happy, he assured her, perfectly happy. Though he had never done a thing that they talked of, his whole life had been a failure. It made her angry still. She had reached the park gates. She stood for a moment, looking at the omnibuses in, Pil looking at the omnibuses in Piccadilly. She would not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or were that. She felt very young, at the same time unspeakably aged. She sliced like a knife through everything, at the same time was outside looking on. She had a perpetual sense, as she watched the taxicabs, of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. Not that she thought herself clever or much out of the ordinary. How she had got through life on the few twigs of knowledge Fräulein Daniels gave to them, she could not think. She knew nothing, no language, no history. She scarcely read a book now, except memoirs in bed, and yet to hear her, and yet to her it was absolutely absorbing, all this, 
the cab's passing, and she would not say of Peter, she would not say of herself, I am this, I am that. Her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct, she thought, walking on. If you put her in a room with someone, up went her back like a cat's, or she purred. Devonshire house, bath house, and the house with the china cockatoo, she had seen them all lit up once, and remembered Sylvia, Fred, Sally Seaton, such hosts of people, and dancing all night, and wagons plodding past market, and driving home across the park. She remembered once throwing a shilling into the serpentine, but everyone remembered what she loved was this, here, now, in front of her. The fat lady in the cab. Did it matter then, she asked herself, walking towards Bond Street? Did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her? Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely, but that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived, Peter survived, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive, of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling all to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on their branches as she had seen trees lift the mist, but spread it ever so far, her life, herself. But what was she dreaming as she looked into Hatchard's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country as she read in the book spread open? Fear no more the heat o' the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. This late age of the world's experience has spread in them all, all men and women, a well of tears. Tears and sorrows, courage and endurance a perfectly upright and stoical bearing. Think, for example, of the woman she admired most, Lady Bexborough, opening the bazaar. There were Jorick's Johnson Jollities, there were Soapy Sponge and Miss Asquith's memoirs and big game shooting in Nigeria all spread open. Ever so many books there were, but none that seemed exactly right to take to Evelyn Whitbread in her nursing home. Nothing that would serve to amuse her and make that indescribably dried-up little woman look as Clarissa came in, just for a moment, cordial, before they settled down for the usual interminable talk of women's ailments. How much she wanted it, that people should look pleased as she came in, Clarissa thought, and turned and walked back towards Bond Street, annoyed, because it was silly to have other reasons for doing things. Much rather would she have been one of those people, like Richard, who did things for themselves, whereas she thought, waiting to cross, half the time she did things not simply not for themselves, but to make people think this or that. Perfect idiocy, she knew, and now the policeman held up his hand, for no one was ever for a second taken in. Oh, she could have had her life over again, she thought, stepping onto the pavement, could have looked even differently. She would have been, in the first place, dark like Lady Bexborough, with skin of crumpled leather and beautiful eyes. She would have been, like Lady Bexborough, slow and stately, rather large, interested in politics like a man, with a country house, very dignified, very sincere. Instead of which she a narrow pea-stick figure, a ridiculous little face, beaked like a bird's. That she held herself well was true, 
and had nice hands and feet and dressed well, considering that she spent little. But often now this body she wore, she stopped to look at a Dutch picture, this body with all its capacities seemed nothing, nothing at all. She had the oddest sense of being herself invisible, unseen, unknown. There being no more marrying, no more having of children now, but only this astonishing and rather solemn progress with the rest of them, up Bond Street. This being Mrs. Dalloway, not even Clarissa anymore. This being Mrs. Richard Dalloway. Bond Street fascinated her. Bond Street earlier in the morning in the season, its flags flying, its shops, no splash, no glitter, one roll of tweed in the shop where her father had bought his suits for fifty years, a few pearls, salmon on an ice block. That is all, she said, looking at the fishmongers. That is all, she repeated, pausing for a moment at the window of a glove shop where, before the war, you could buy almost perfect gloves. And her old Uncle William used to say, a lady is known by her shoes and her gloves. He had turned on his bed one morning in the middle of the war. He had said, I have had enough. Gloves and shoes, she had a passion for gloves, but her own daughter, her Elizabeth, cared not a straw for either of them. Not a straw, she thought, going on up Bond Street to a shop where they kept flowers for her when she gave a party. Elizabeth really cared for her dog most of all. The whole house this morning smelt of tar, Still, better poor Grizzle than Miss Kilman, better distemper and tar and all the rest of it than sitting mute in a stuffy bedroom with a prayer book. Better anything, she was inclined to say. But it might only be a phase, as Richard said, such as all girls go through. It might be falling in love. But why with Miss Kilman, who had been badly treated, of course, one must make allowances for that. And Richard said she was very able and had a really historical mind. Anyhow, they were inseparable, and Elizabeth, her own daughter, went to communion. And how she dressed, how she treated people who came to lunch, she did not care a bit. It being her experience that the religious ecstasy made people callous, so did causes. Dealt their feelings, for Miss Kilman would do anything for the Russians. Starved herself for the Austrians, but in private inflicted positive torture. So insensitive was she dressed in a green Macintosh coat. Year in, year out, she wore that coat. She perspired. She was never in the room five minutes without making you feel her superiority, your inferiority. How poor she was, how rich you were. How she lived in a slum without a cushion or a bed or a rug or whatever it might be. All her soul rusted with that grieving sticking in it. Her dismissal from school during the war, poor, embittered, unfortunate creature. Poor, embittered, unfortunate creature. For it was not her one hated, for it was not her one hated, but the idea of her, which undoubtedly had gathered into itself a great deal that was not Miss Kilman, had become one of those specters with which one battles in the night, one of those specters who stand astride us and suck up half our lifeblood, dominators and tyrants, for no doubt with another throw of the dice had the black been uppermost and not the white, she would have loved Miss Kilman but not in this world, no. It rasped through her, though, to have stirring about in this brutal monster. It rasped through her, though, 
chaff stirring about in her this brutal monster, to hear twigs cracking and feel hoofs planted down in the depths of that leaf-encumbered forest, the soul, never to be content quite or quite secure, for at any moment the brute would be stirring this hatred, which, especially since her illness, had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine." gave her physical pain, and made all pleasure in beauty, in friendship, in being well, in being loved and making her own delightful rock, quiver, and bend as if indeed there was a monster grubbing at the roots, as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love, this hatred. As if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love, this hatred. "'Nonsense! Nonsense!' she cried to herself, pushing through the swing doors of mulberries, the florists. She advanced, light, tall, very upright, to be greeted at once by button-faced Miss Pym, whose hands were always bright red, as if they had stood in cold water with the flowers. There were flowers, delphinium, sweet peas, bunches of lilac and carnation, masses of carnations. There were roses, there were irises. Ah, oh, yes!' So she breathed in the earthy garden sweet smell as she stood talking to Miss Pym, who owed her help and thought her kind, for kind she had been years ago, very kind, but she looked older, this year, turning her head from side to side among the irises and roses and nodding tufts of lilac with her eyes half-closed, snuffing in after the street uproar, the delicious scent, the exquisite coolness. And then... Opening her eyes, how fresh, like frilled linen clean from a laundry, laden wicker trays the roses looked, and dark and prim the red carnations, holding their heads up, and all the sweet peas spreading in their bowls, tinged violet, snow-white, pale, as if it were the evening and the girls in muslin frocks came out to pick sweet peas and roses after a superb summer's day, with its almost blue-black sky, its delphiniums, its carnations, its arum lilies was over, and it was the moment when, and it was the moment between six and seven when every flower, roses, carnations, irises, lilac, glows, white, violet, and it was the moment between six and seven when every flower, roses, carnations, irises, lilac, glows. White, violet, red, deep orange, every flower seems to burn by itself, softly, purely in the misty beds. And how she loved the gray-white moths spinning in and out over the cherry pie, over the evening primroses. And as she began to go with Miss Pym from jar to jar, choosing nonsense, nonsense, she told herself more and more gently, as if this beauty, this scent, this color, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, were a wave which she let flow over her and surmount that hatred, that monster, surmount it all, and it lifted her up and up when, oh, a pistol shot in the street outside. Dear, those motor cars, said Miss Pym, going to the window to look, and coming back and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas, as if the motor cars, those tires of motor cars, were all her fault. So, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's where we're ending today with Mrs. Dalloway. I promise it does get a lot juicier. 
Everyone marvels at the car going by, and they're all like, Is that the queen? It's gotta be someone famous. Then we start to get introduced to a few new characters. One of the most important is Septimus Warren Smith, who's a veteran of World War I. His parts of the novel give us insight into the ravages that war can play on the mind, as he suffers from PTSD and often has visions of his former commanding officer, who died in the war, still being alive. It's pretty sad, and it acts as a definite foil to Mrs. Dalloway, who's overtly concerned with high society and was largely untouched by the war. We also meet the indomitable Peter Walsh, who we heard so much about in Mrs. Dalloway's inner monologue, and later on we become more acquainted with Elizabeth, Clarissa's daughter, who may or may not be in love with her history teacher, Miss Kilman. Mrs. Dalloway explores various themes using the stream of consciousness style. I think the style really lends itself to exploration of deeper themes because there's so much more room for an author to play around with deeper concepts to elaborate on whatever their character is thinking. So some of the things that we get to see here are disillusionment with the British Empire, rigidity of class, um, the effects of war on veterans, homosexuality, and the fear of oppression. If you liked Mrs. Dalloway, or if you like it, because you probably haven't read it yet, I have a whole litany of suggestions for you. For more stream of consciousness writing, which I do suggest reading because it doesn't necessarily work the best in audio format, Ulysses or Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce is a great place to start. Uh, the Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. A lot of high schoolers read that. To the Lighthouse, also by Virginia Woolf. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And if you really want to be disillusioned by the British Empire, Train Spotting by Irvine Welsh. Novels that aren't stream of conscious, but that you'd probably like if you like this one, are The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, The Hours by Michael Cunningham, and my favorite. Played as it lays by Joan Didion. For movies, there's a 1997 version of Mrs. Dalloway, which was directed by Marlene Goris. There's also The Portrait of the Lady, a 1996 film directed by Jane Campion, who I believe is actually currently up for an Oscar for her 2021 film Power of the Dog. There's also Mansfield Park, which was directed in 1999 by Patrizia Romeza. And The Hours, which is a 2002 movie directed by Stephen Daldry and made huge splash on Hulu this last year. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Breath of Fresh Air and that you'll go on to read Mrs. Dalloway. Trust me, Stream of Consciousness reads a lot better than it probably sounds. I tried to make it as interesting as I could for you guys, but I get that it might be kind of confusing if you can't see the words on the page. Our next episode is going to be a little different. I'm not going to read you the first chapter of a book, but I think you'll like what I'm going to do. Instead of reading you just one chapter, I'm going to read you a short story. I'm a huge fan of detective fiction. Um, it's probably my favorite genre, and it's definitely what got me into reading when I was younger. I had every single Nancy Drew book, Trixie Belden, um, the Bobsy Twins, because I guess my family thought I really just needed to be stuck in the 60s. But I'm pleased to announce that I'll be reading The Speckled Band by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's the classic locked room mystery. 
Um, and I look forward to getting to share it with you guys. So I guess that's it. Uh, have a great month, and I look forward to reading to you soon. As always, thank you to the Gutenberg Project for providing the North Carolina Digital Library with the titles for this podcast. Bye!